After a seven-year hiatus since her marathon debut at Toronto in 2013, Natasha Wodak returned to the event last week in Chandler, Arizona for the Marathon Project. It was a scintillating return as she ran a 2.26.19 for a top five finish, the second fastest Canadian female performance in history. Natasha also holds the Canadian 10,000 meters national record and was the first Canadian woman to ever run a half marathon under 70 minutes. We connected with Natasha during her post-race quarantine period in Vancouver. She takes us inside the marathon project, her physical and mental preparation, and her Tokyo Olympic dreams. Along the way, we hear about how elites have similar marathon racing experiences as the rest of us, and how finding joy in the process yielded joy in her outcome. Here's Natasha Wodak on mile 68 of the Seconds Flat Running Podcast. Natasha, welcome, and congratulations on the great performance in Arizona. Thank you. I'm happy to be here. Uh, we're excited to have you. I assume you've celebrated in some forced isolation since getting back to British Columbia? Yeah, we opened some nice wine the night I got home, which was great, but unfortunately, the next day I woke up sick, like total oh. head cold, sore throat, stuffy nose, the, the works, um, which was unfortunate. So that ended all sort of further um, eating all the really awesome foods that I had wanted to eat and everything. <laughs> it was sort of just, I was pretty sick for like four days, but it's not COVID. So that's good. I did get tested. So people know that. <laughs> good, good. Yeah, that kind of ruins the uh, thing that so many of us marathoners look forward to after the race. Was there something in particular that you had uh, waiting for you to eat post-race you were excited about? No, I mean, I love desserts and everything, and I, I love wine, but I didn't feel like, I mean, I, I didn't feel like having any more than like, I didn't one glass, and I didn't want to open up anything really nice, because I'm like, well, you don't feel good, and like, you want to really enjoy it, and we have some really nice wines that we bought this summer when we did like a winery uh, two week wine vacation this summer in BC. So that was, you know, it's fine. I, I went on a cruise after Doha last year and I ate everything in sight. And I think I gained eight pounds in 10 <laughs> days, something along those lines. So we haven't gained weight as quickly this time, which is nice. But, uh, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> what has it been like with the juxtaposition of such a great achievement the holiday season's going on, so you're used to being around a lot of people, and now you come home and you're kind of tucked away and celebrating uh, close to alone. Yeah, you know what? Here in in British Columbia, the province I live in, in Vancouver, we're we're actually kind of on a semi lockdown, anyways. So you're not supposed to be with anyone outside of your immediate household unless you are with them on a regular basis. So like. Basically, unless your parents are helping taking care of your kids, you shouldn't see them. They don't live in your house. Mm -hmm. So a lot of people did not see anyone anyways. So I didn't feel that alone because everybody was alone anyways. It was really hard. And like, so like some of you, if you were 
So example, like people that are single, they basically were supposed to like choose sort of one person that was their like person. And that's the only person they're supposed to see basically for the last like eight weeks. Mm. It's been really hard. So Christmas was really no different for me than it would have been anyways. Um, my partner is here. He lives with me. And fortunately, since I did test negative for COVID on the third day I'm home, I know that I don't have it. So I'm able to sort of like be in the house with him as opposed to before you're supposed to like literally wear a mask and stay away from anyone, even in your own house, which is crazy. Fortunately, we have a big house and it's attainable, but I, I had Christmas with him, which was really nice. And we did, you know, had made the food and it was great. Yeah, it, it is such a bizarre time for Isn't all it? of us. Yeah. We're all trying to figure our way through and we know that none of us probably have the right answer, but it is, I'm sure, nice being in the situation you are to at least have a little bit of normalcy there, someone to share it with um, yes. during yeah. the holidays. Yeah. So as crazy as 2020 has been, what a year for you running, right? You kick it off as the first Canadian woman to break 70 and a half at Houston. And now the second fastest marathon in national history at the Marathon Project. But your journey to success in those events is like nearly a decade in the making. Let's rewind and start by asking, what motivated this jump up in distance and return to the marathon after debuting there seven plus years ago? Yeah, um, well, I've been running since grade five. Um, I've been involved in the sport. I went to the University of Arkansas at Little Rock for a year and a half um, and then came home and went to university here and competed, you know, there and, and loved track, but I was, I never had the ambition of being an Olympian. It, like I was good, but I was never that good. I mean, I think my PB was like 1645 in the 5k, things like that. And I quit running after college and I mean, I quit competing. I still ran like three days a week, you know, just for fun and took three years off and then came back to the sport. I think it was about 2009 and started training competitively again and saw, you know, in, like I started PBing right away. I think I was like 28 at the time, 29. And I made my first national team when I was 29, which a little odd in the way that everything works, but that was the beginning of, you know, I've been on 18 national teams since then. And I always feel like the distances have sort of chosen me. So when I've, when I went to the 10,000, I ran really well in it. And I was like, well, maybe this is my event. And then I ran the half marathon and I ran really well in it. And I was like, okay. And when I ran the marathon in 2013, I ran 235 which I was very happy with at the time. I think my PB in the half was about 114. So it made sense. It, it was a good, a good run for me. But after that, I got injured. And for a year, I had plantar fasciitis. And y'all know that plantar fasciitis is so tough. And that took all of 2014 out of me. And then in 2015, I sort of just got thrown into the 10,000. And I ran the Canadian record that spring, which was like, crazy. It was unexpected and, and really exciting. But then it was like, okay, now I need to concentrate on the 10,000. And it just sort of went from there where there was not really another opportunity to run a marathon without risking getting injured for the following year's 10,000. So like in Canada, it's different to qualify for 
like the Olympics or world championships or Commonwealth games or any of those things in the 10,000, you, you don't have to compete at the trials. You just have to have one of the three fastest times under the qualifying time. And there's never been more than two people in Canada that have ever run under the qualifying. So it's, you know, easier for us. And when I, so at the Olympics, I would, I ran the qualifying time for the following year for the worlds. At worlds, I ran the, the qualifying time for Commonwealth. And so every year at the big race, I would requalify for the next year. So it was like, I already knew I was going a year in advance. So it never really made sense to throw in a marathon when the last one I did caused a tear in my pelvis and then an injury right after. So I just, I was never willing to sort of take the risk. And this year, you know, crazy COVID year with the Olympics being postponed. And I'm, I, you know, I turned 39 and I'd wanted to do the New York marathon this fall. That was what I wanted to do. And I thought, you know, now's the time. Let's just do it. Like I, I really wanted to be a part of the marathon club. Like, all these Canadian women are running so fast and doing it. And I wanted to see what I could do. And I just thought, let's like, life is too short. I can't, let's risk the injury. Let's just do it. So, yeah. Let's get into the marathon project. And since you brought up the qualifying process in Canada, which is mm -hmm. unique for some of us here in the States, maybe not familiar with how that works here. The team has been selected last February yeah. in Atlanta through the trials, but your targeting an Olympic standard mark of 229.30 or under. So let's, let's jump into the race with, when did you know you had the standard? When I crossed the finish line. Nick, one of my pacers, literally with like 800 to go, I was like, can we break 226? And he was like, no. And I was like, can we break 227? And he's like, yes, absolutely. <laughs> like. I was in such a panic because I, the last 3K, the last, I guess, two miles was so hard that I didn't know how much I'd slowed. And I was like, did I slow like, you know, 10 to 15 seconds a mile? I didn't know. I was hoping not. And I didn't. But yeah, I, I was, you never know until you cross the line and you see the time. And then I started crying. <laughs> <laughs> well deserved. You know, I find the marathon to be deeply humanizing in a way we maybe don't see in other sports. 100%. Right, the mid and backpack marathoner can connect with what you just said, the emotions, the physical strain of an elite. Describe the feelings you went through maybe the last 10K of that race. Yeah, you know what? I did a Zoom chat last night with a run group and I was saying like, I may be fast, but we are all marathoners and we all experience the same thing. We all go through the same training. We all have the highs, the lows, the injuries, the feelings are the same. Like it's, it's, we really do experience it the same thing. And I, I love watching the end of a marathon. I've, I've stood there and watched hours and hours of people coming across and just seeing their reaction. It's just like, I did it. I, you know, it's just such a feat. It really is. And yeah, like the last five, going back to your question, sort of the last 10 K I would say it was more like the last four miles that was really when it started to get, when the race began, really. And I, I knew that that was what was going to happen. I knew it would feel easy until it just didn't. And that was what happened to me. And it got, you know, I had a, like a, a cramp or a pain in, in my hamstring and I felt nauseous and my body just started to, it just felt really hard. And I really had to just get mentally tough. And 
continue to say positive things like, yes, you can, this is your race. Like I cursed a couple times out loud, like you've effing got this, like we're like, these are the <laughs> things that I had to say, right? Like, and continuing to just sort of be positive and not be like, you're slowing down and, and hold it together. And then thinking about the things that my coach had reminded me of, she's like, when it gets tough, I want you to go to the checklist that we've made. What are you doing with your arms? Where's your breath? Where's your pelvis? Count one, two, one, two, one, two, like just the little things to help get you through each K. And, you know, we've done it so many times in training that thankfully I was able to come back to all those cues and just get one K, one K, one K and really sort of suffer it out. And, and I knew it was going to hurt. And so I did feel prepared for the pain. Like it didn't come and I was like, Oh no, it's over. It came. And I'm like, now we fight, you know, now this is where we work and this is what we've trained for. And so let's do this. So um, it was really tough uh, in that last seven K um, but you know, got it done. And, and then you're, you know, when you finish, it's even more rewarding because you're like, man, like I really, I was able to do it and I was able to suffer. And I think everyone gets that feeling at the end because 42 K is a long, a long way. And it's not just the race. It's the process of getting there and the sacrifices you've made along the way. And for a lot of people with families, it means missing Sunday mornings with your family and, and doing that long run. And that's tough. So it's, it's very rewarding when you finish, like, it was all for something. <laughs> oh, yeah. That's a beautiful summary of the entire marathon experience. And I, I hope people uh, latch on to some of those tips you gave about in the moment when you feel that pain, because you said it, it's going to happen. And I, I worry sometimes we set ourselves up for, oh, I'm going to get to this mile and then it's going to hurt. And we create expectations. But as you said, you just kind of have to get to the moment where it does and then respond. Yeah. You know what? I, I feel like a lot of people, they want to run really like a fast first half and then have like a two minute leeway for them to slow down. I didn't want to be like, well, when it starts to hurt, I'm going to slow down. I wanted to be, when it starts to hurt, I'm going to fight and I'm going to hold the pace as much as I can. That was the way we were thinking of it instead of, okay, I'm going to go out really hard and let myself die when it hurts. And I think a lot of people, when the pain comes, they're kind of, they're just not prepared for it. And sometimes you have the fight in you and sometimes you don't. And that's normal. There's days when I don't have the fight in me and I would have slowed down. This was a different day. I did have the fight and yeah, I was able to fight, but you know, that's just, racing that's just running and so I think that a lot of people get get scared and think that they're not strong enough or they're not tough enough and that's when it comes to the mental game you really just have to believe that you can and and you will because you've trained for it you know you've done those tough sessions your coach isn't going to tell you you can go out and run a time if you can't run it so if your coach believes you can they've seen you do the work you know you can do it you just you really have to be mentally tough because your body can't do it what do you think made that day different that you were the one throwing punches rather than the course throwing them back at you? <laughs> oh man. You know, uh, I think when I was lining up, I felt really excited to be there and grateful for the opportunity. And I know you've heard a lot of athletes say that. And sometimes I'm like, are they just saying that because it's what we're supposed to say or it's cheesy, but it is the absolute truth. I mean, in a year where there was nothing in a year where everything was canceled, here we are with this opportunity in Arizona on a perfect day 
on a fantastic course with, you know, pacers and the whole works, like how lucky were we? And so going in with that feeling, no pressure, I didn't feel pressure because for me, the marathon was sort of like plan B for the Olympics. Like I, I still want to go in the 10,000. So I'm like, let's just go out and no one, no one knew how fast I could run. I hadn't done one in so long. I was just kind of like, what can I do? And to run with, with feeling of like no pressure, just like do what you've got to do. And this feeling of running free as my coach likes to say, and, you know, knowing that I had prepared in every way, shape or form that I could. And I don't know, it just happened to be my day, but I've also had those days where it has gotten tough and I've faltered and started to cry. And I don't know, maybe it's just, I'm 39 and I really learned maybe (laughs) their experience, like how to prepare better mentally. I think that's a huge part that a lot of athletes don't take seriously is actually preparing mentally for when it gets tough. And I think, I think it was maybe Kara Goucher or Shalane Flanagan that said something along the lines of when the pain comes, they're like, well, hello there, my friend, you know, something along those lines, like you're ready for it. You welcome it. You're ready for it. Like that's the way you got to look at it. Yeah. The approach of racing with gratitude that you mentioned a lot of people in your race talked about, I hope that's something that gets carried out of this to every race going forward. And just every day that we go out and get to run with our friends, when that moment returns for you in in BC, that we're all thankful and grateful for those opportunities, because isn't that such the essence of, of this sport? Yeah. The run community is amazing. And it's, it's been so hard for everybody not to be able to get to that starting line and, have that post-race beer and all these things that we love so much and uh it's tough and I felt bad that I got a race and other people didn't fortunately you know like I did like I said I did two zoom chats yesterday with two different run groups Q&A and it was nice that they could all get together still virtually but there's nothing quite like that Sunday run together with your crew and um getting to put all your hard work and show it off in a race you know so Oh, it's tough, but we'll get back there. We'll get back there. (laughs) Absolutely. We have to remain hopeful and optimistic that day is coming. So what were the tactical implications of a race designed to get out hot on a course designed to be flat and fast? How did that impact your preparation? So my goal was always 226. Um, Like after about halfway through the build, after about six weeks, we thought, okay, that's realistic. You, your body seems to like the 328 kilometers. So um, before that, we weren't really sure what I'd be able to run 228, 226, 224. We didn't know where I would get. So that sort of scene came, happened to be organic. And so Ben Rosario sent an email out about two weeks before the race asking what our goal times were. And I sent him that. And then it came back that there was going to be a pace group for 226. And I thought, this is awesome, right? This is my lucky day. So I knew that that was happening. And that was just like, okay, you're going and you're sticking with that group as long as you can. And the gun went off. And after 1K, it was just Nick and Will and me. And there was no other girls. So I had two pacers to myself, which was incredible. And they were unreal. Like they did such an amazing job with metronomes. 
I didn't have to think, I just had to follow them, <laughs> which is a, it, the mental energy that I saved by having them do the work is what got me, you know, the 7K, I was able to fight so hard because I had conserved all that mental, mental energy for the end. Well, that's a great point. And you had pacers to help you do mm -hmm. that. But the average runner might be able to get in a pack that's similar in, in a race when, when normal racing returns. Maybe give a, a, an idea of how you, using the pacers, kind of dissociate there, saved yourself some energy and were able to associate and attack the pain and the feelings later on. And let me add a wrinkle to that those mental aspects combined with it being a multi-loop course, how that played into your mental approach. Yeah, you know what? Um, the looped course had no effect on me at all. When I'm in a road race, I could go you know, out and back and not really notice. So whether we were on a looped course or not, I mean, I'm, I'm a 10K specialist, so I run 25 laps the track. So I don't, it didn't, phased me at all. I liked the course and I liked that I knew exactly where the water stations were. They were in the same spot, every loop, things like that. So I really liked that. And it had no, um, and I don't work in miles. So I didn't even know what 4.2 miles was or whatever. I work in kilometers. So, um, it didn't, I didn't know anything about it. So it was fine. And with having a pace group, um, or pacers, you, really just have to trust that they're doing a good job. And if, if you're looking at your watch, then you're not, A, you're not trusting them, and B, you're wasting your energy being like, well, that was one second off, or that was one second off. And so um, I didn't want to do that, and I didn't, marathon is so long. So I, I hit my watch every 7K, because there were, or sorry, every 5K, because there were mats. And that was more like, okay, you want to be within 15 seconds of your time. So that was you know, if you were 14 seconds off, I knew it didn't matter because I could get that back over the next 5k. So it was way less stressful to run it like that. And if you do run in a pace group, yeah, you just, you can shut your mind off and just sort of enjoy the run a bit more without stressing about, okay, do I need to pick up the pace? Or I need to slow it down and just be like, well, let them do the work and just hang out here and have a chat. We chatted a bit. Yeah. <laughs> Even the perfectly even split race is not exact down to the second. You're right. And for Americans who are running road races where we tend to see mile marks that we associate with, I, I actually do think your 5K plan can be really effective. That's something I've used at bigger American road races like Boston or CIM, where they also have the, the kilometers marked every five, where mm -hmm. you're getting bigger chunks and not getting so into your head each yeah. mile. For you, I assume the same thing could happen if you locked into each kilometer yeah. trying to be dialed in. It, it may have a similar effect, right? Yeah. And, and you know that like your GPS watch is not accurate, especially with the roundabouts. So I knew that like looking at each K, it could be two seconds off, it could be three seconds off, and that's enough for me to panic, right? Like, oh, you're running three seconds off per kilometer, that's like a minute, th that's like almost two minutes over the marathon. Just crazy to think, like 42 seconds, like you lose 42 seconds if you run one second slower over the whole thing. Like that's nuts to me, but. Yeah. Um, these were the things I thought about when I was training for the marathon. It was like two hours and 25 to 30 minutes of running. That's so long. And like how every second made such a difference. And like, it was just, 
it was crazy. I mean, I've never been a big mileage runner, so it was like daunting. <laughs> yeah. Oh, I'm, I'm yeah. sure that was a, a huge transition for you coming from your more track oriented background. Yeah, I'm more of a, like I run more like 100K a week. So it was kind of, it was definitely a big jump. And, uh, but I enjoyed it. I really liked doing the longer run, the longer, it was, a, it was fresh, right? After sort of seven years of training for the 10K and a half, it was new workouts and it just felt new again. It was really fun. To a degree, I guess a, a change is almost like a rest and it's the way it rejuvenates you. Where, where did you max out on your volume? You said that typically you're at about 100K a week. What did you go to here in this cycle? Um, I had 138K, but I also had one week where if you counted it differently, um, I had 152. But generally, I averaged between 130 and 140K a week. But I also supplemented, I have an elliptical at home, and I ellipticaled about an additional four three to four hours a week. Some, I mean, more like three, there was some weeks that were a bit more, but yeah, about five days a week, I was on the elliptical. Can you pull back the curtain a little bit and a little glimpse of maybe what some of that average week might've looked like, what type of work you were doing? Yeah, for sure. So um, it was generally the same. My workouts were Wednesday and Saturday. So, uh, and we, we did take days off every 10 days. So that, that also really affected what my miles looked like, you know, um, and I tried not to get caught up in that because the weeks then where I had a day off, obviously we're going to be less. And I was like, I can't, can't, don't look at that number. Just know you're doing the work. And that's all like, it's hard not to look at that. And then also look at other people and be like, well, Sarah did 186 K last week. And I'm like, that's what works for her. Fine. So yeah, we did a lot of work on that elliptical, which you know, for us was a way to work the engine, a way to get that aerobic without sort of trashing my body too much. Cause you know, I've had surgery on my foot and I'm a little more frail than I'd like to be. So, <laughs> but yeah, Monday was um, usually a 60 minute round in a 45 minute elliptical broken up of course, and then strength training. Uh, Tuesday was very similar to Monday. So 60, 45, or sometimes 60 and 60. Uh, with 60 minute run, 60 minute elliptical. Uh, Wednesday would be a 30 to 40 minute run in the morning. And then in the afternoon, we would do a workout. So that would vary from some sort of a fartlek, like be a 5K warm up straight into one minute, two minute, three minute, four minute, five minute, 10 minute, and then back down with one minute easy. Um, and then warm down. Uh, we did, oh, lots of different things, 20 times, one minute on, one minute off. I love that workout. I think we did that twice during this build. Um, variations, but Wednesday was always a bit of a shorter, like it was not the marathon pace stuff. It would be faster stuff. And then Thursday would be a same thing as Monday or Tuesday, 60 minute run, 45 minute elliptical. Friday would be, or or, or Thursday and Friday would switch. So one of the days would be like an 80 to 90 minute run and a 30 minute elliptical in the evening. So I had literally like an elliptical was always sort of my second run, except the workout days where I got to do the two runs. And then Saturday was the marathon pace workout. So those would vary depending on where I was at in my build, things like that. But it would generally be between 
you know, 25K to 35K of work. And if it was on the lower end, then I would run 30 minutes in the evening. And then <clears throat> it would depend, Sunday would be, would depend on what I did on Saturday, but it would probably be the same thing, like the broken up 60 minute run, 45 minute elliptical, something along those lines. So that's kind of how it worked. Uh, other times we would do um, Saturday workout, Monday long run, Wednesday workout, but the Monday long run would be, wouldn't be super long. It'd be like an hour 50. Um, we would do that, throw that in there if the Saturday workout wasn't too long. So trying to get in at least like a run that was longer than 90 minutes plus a marathon style workout. And then like a fartlek was kind of the idea in there. And, but because we were on like a 10 day cycle, it, it kind of got messed up along the way. I'm my coach's only athlete. So it was very based on how I felt. And there'd be days where I'd be like, I'm still tired. I'm not ready to do the workout tomorrow. So we bump it or things like that. So <clears throat> which is really nice to have, to be able to do that. Right. Yeah. The way you distilled that down, I, I think it's fantastic for people to see there, there's not a lot of secrets here. You, you did really consistent work. As you said, it was very individualized with what worked with how your body felt good long runs, good tempo work, something faster. That's maybe a fart lick, a medium long effort in there. Yeah. Uh, the stuff that we know to be true, you, you're not out there doing something so dramatically different than all of us who want to be successful in a marathon. Yeah. Yeah. And I had, you know, strength training was in there, sorry, twice a week on Thursdays as well. And I work with, um, once a week, we do a Zoom personal session and I've been working with the same strength coach for almost five years now, um, which is really important. A lot of people, a lot of runners just want to run. Mm -hmm. And, you know, we strength training is just like, ah, oh, but it is so important. And I not like I'm doing a lot, but you know, you're just trying to avoid injury really and get those glutes working and getting your core engaged. So that's really important. And I, I think a lot of people need to remember that just spend 30 minutes twice a week doing those little things. And it does make a big difference. So. Yeah, we all want to spend those 30 minutes doing extra miles until yeah. we're out with an injury and can't. <laughs> run it all for the week. Yeah. That's so true. How did the successful Houston experience factor into the preparation you had for Arizona? It was a huge confidence builder because, you know, it's, it is one thing to say, you can look at someone's time space in the half and say, well, this is what they can run in a marathon. And I knew that that doesn't always translate. So as much as it did give me confidence, like I looked at sort of what Rachel Cliff is running the half and what Melendi's running the half and what other women have run in the half and then what they run in the marathon. I was like, well, I should be able to run 226, right? Like based off of them, but you never know. It's it just sometimes this does not translate at all. So, but that did give me the confidence to know that I was in this sort of this caliber of women that have run good marathons. So I was like, okay, like, and then I ran a 70.02 in November here in Vancouver in the middle of the build. So that was sort of the biggest confidence builder knowing, you know, you're, you're ready. You're in sub, basically sub 70 shape and you're six weeks out from the marathon. Like you're ready to go. That was a big confidence booster to do that in the middle of the build. I was really happy with that. And we actually made our own course and got it certified and sanctioned here in Vancouver because 
unlike the US, like you guys, we had nothing happening. Like there was some track races, but they weren't like what you guys have. And there was zero road races. And I was like, I really like, I want to race a half. So we got it certified, got it all rolled out. And I went out there and I had my own pacer and we had it timed and the whole works and it was awesome. And I was able to run pretty my second fastest time ever. And it felt like a real race. Yeah, that was, so anyways, I kind of jammed on there, but. Uh, it, that's great because I think it, it shows a passion and you're seeing some of that with stuff that's popping up. Uh, even the marathon project as an example, the stuff that like Brooks Hansen's did in Michigan with the pro Ekaden and their half marathon earlier in the year, you just getting out and creating a course and, <laughs> and racing a half. We've all had to get a little creative, safely, but creative. And I'm assuming some confidence came from that and that you're, as you said, I believe six weeks out and I'm going to guess untapered just as part of your preparation for the marathon. We did do a bit of a taper um, because we wanted to run fast. I wanted to break the Canadian record. Oh, okay. Because I broke the Canadian record and then it was lowered by three seconds right. two weeks later. So I, I knew I had it in my wheelhouse and I, I thought I was ready, but you know, unfortunately just went out of too slow. We were 30 seconds too slow at 10 K and you know, it is tough when you're just sort of you and your pacer, it's not like the real race. Um, but anyways, I, you know, I went after and I wanted to run fast. So we did do a bit of a taper for that, but that's what we decided would be the best plan for me. And I'm really glad we did it that way because I love to race and she knew I needed to race in this build. And that's another reason why I hadn't raced a marathon in seven years is because I knew that I wouldn't be able to do all the other races that I wanted to do. I, you know, I usually race 20 to 25 times a year. Like I just love it. And so I didn't want to sacrifice anything else. So it was fun to get in a race. It built my confidence. Um, but I, I'm not going to sit here and say I did it on marathon legs. Like I don't, I was only, we tapered that week. I think I ran a hundred K maybe. Then I guess you leave that more with a, uh, a mental confidence of getting back to racing, something that you love that yeah. kind of contentedness with where you are six weeks out. Yeah. And you know, you've got to keep sharp and in the year where there were no races, we knew that, I needed to keep that edge. So we put in a lot of time trials and virtual races. Like I think I did four 10 K virtual races or time trials out on my own. I did two five thousands on the track that were like, none of this was official. They were all like time trials or virtual races. And I ran a PB in the 3000. <laughs> I think it's funny that I ran a PB in the 3000 in July and then a PB in the marathon. <laughs> oh Yeah. <laughs> So that was fun. It was really fun to run some faster stuff and like faster for me in the summer and then to totally switch in the fall and go for the longer stuff. And I realized as soon as we started doing the marathon work, oh, this is so much better. Like I kept saying that to my coach, like I like this so much more because like in the summer I was just struggling to be like fast and it just wasn't the runner that I am. And so I'm glad I took that time to like train for a 3K and a 5K and realized, nope, you are a half marathon marathon runner. <laughs> well, it shows some incredible range and fitness <laughs> across the spectrum to run both those within a year. And, and 
you know, now as after you return to marathoning, you're reminded of it's a very different kind of pain, right? From yes. 3,000, 3, it's from the gun, here we go. And, and it's just kind of that long slog that you get into sometimes in a marathon that's very yes. different. What was the original pre-pandemic uh, pre racing plan for this year? Oh, so much. <laughs> <laughs> Oh, it was going to be the, like the greatest year. Yeah, we were, we were supposed to go to New York the day like everything ended. I was going to run the New York half in mm. March, come home. And then my partner and I were going to go to La Loma in Mexico and do high altitude training there. I don't know if you've heard of the training camp there. Shannon Robert goes there. It's yeah. amazing. And then go to Flagstaff and train there, go to Peyton Jordan, hopefully run a great 10,000 spend a week in Napa, like, oh, it's just gonna be so great. And then hopefully like go to the Olympics and then afterwards go on a great vacation. And a lot of my friends start turning 40 this year and next year. One of my friends was gonna go to Cabo for her 40th in November. And I was like, yes, I will have run the New York marathon and then I can come to Cabo. Like there was all these things that were, I was so looking forward to and we're gonna be great and you know, so was everybody else. So I'm not like, I know everybody else had all these awesome plans and people that had their weddings canceled. I felt so bad for all those people. So hopefully we can redo it all next year. <laughs> well, on that note, you mentioned maybe shooting for the, the double and an Olympic return with the 10,000. Have you thought at all now, giving yourself some time after the well, marathon project of what's the spring schedule look like? Maybe what awaits you? Yeah, so it's impossible to double because they're on the same day. So I know that that is not a realistic possibility. So I still want to go out and run a really fast 10,000, and hopefully I can qualify in that. Yeah, I'm sorry. I meant getting to the qualifying mark, not yeah. running both races. Yeah. <laughs> okay. Yeah. <laughs> I'm, I'm assuming you had already known. <laughs> yeah. Right? Uh, some people don't. And so sure. they're like, are you going to do both? Like, oh, yeah. No. Because in other years, you've been able to double. Lani Marchand from Canada doubled in 2016. They were far enough apart. But um, I don't know what I will do. To be honest, I'm like, I don't even, you don't count your chicks before they're hatched. So there's still time for other Canadian women to run faster than the marathon time that I posted. So I know that that is what could easily happen. And then I won't even have the choice of the marathon. So um I would like to qualify in the 10,000. And if I had the choice, I honestly do not know what I would do. The other thing is that there's already five Canadian women that have qualified in the marathon and zero in the 10,000. And it'd be hard to take a spot knowing that you're taking it, not take, you're not taking it away from someone else, but you, someone else could go if you chose the other one. I don't know. I don't want to think about it unless that actually happens. So... <laughs> If you get to that point, it'll be a good dilemma to have, to be choosing yes. between the two. Okay, we'll get you out of here with a few quick questions to wrap up. First, favorite uh, memory from your time in Arkansas in college? Oh, wow. That was like 20 years ago. <laughs> <laughs> uh, I would say when we went, we had a trip where we went to Stanford. Mm -hmm. It was really fun. And we got a tour. San Francisco and it was just a small group that was that was a really fun trip that I went on with the team cool I've been to Vancouver once uh Victoria beautiful cities an amazing place I'd love to go back 
for the visitor from the States who's making their trip to British Columbia, what are the two or three must-do, must-see things for the outsider? Okay, number one is you have to go to wine country if you like wine. So that's about three hours drive, but then there's like 200 and something odd wineries within a two-hour drive. And the weather is beautiful up there. It's nice and warm. There's lakes everywhere. It's just awesome. And you can like ride your bike and go to the wineries and then there's fabulous restaurants. It's kind of like our little Napa mm -hmm. and they make great wine. And that's, we love to go up there in the summer and relax. And that's definitely number one. I mean, Vancouver itself is an amazing city. It's got some of the best places to run in the world. I feel so lucky to live here. Beautiful trails, you know, right on the ocean, a lot to do. Uh, great restaurants. So it's, it's a pretty great city. And the, the weather in the summer is just usually like, you know, 25 Celsius uh, every day. I don't know what that is in Fahrenheit. I'm sorry. Yeah. So I was there in, <laughs> in July and it was in uh, Fahrenheit. It was in like the 60s to maybe 70 degrees at the most each day and sunny. It was really, really nice. Yeah. Yeah. So it's great running weather. Like, yeah. Um, and so whenever we have training camps in the summer to go somewhere else, I'm like, why would I go anywhere else? I live in like the absolute perfect place to train with the most beautiful trails. So yeah, I, I although we get like a lot of rain, oh my <laughs> goodness. Like, I think it's rained every day this December, except maybe one or two. You mentioned the Canadian success uh, among women at the marathon distance here recently. Anything you could point to behind this uh, emergence of, of Canadian female marathoning over recent years? Yeah, I get asked that question a lot. And it's funny, my partner did some research sort of on women's marathoning and the increase in women in general racing marathons is like insane in the last five years. Like it's just gone up. So I think A, there's more women running marathons. You know, 10 years ago, there weren't a lot of women in Canada running competitive marathons. I don't know why it just wasn't happening. Like I like, I think our Canadian record was 228.30, and it had stood for 28 years before it was broken in 213 in 2013. Sorry. And, um, and then when Lanny and Krista both ran like 228 and they qualified for the Olympics, it was like, okay, like, women are marathoning, women are running fast. And then we all started being like, okay, maybe I can. Like I had never even thought about doing a marathon in 2013 or in 2011. And then Lanny was like, I want to do one. And it was just like, why? It's so far. And the whole mentality has just changed. I think we're just doing it. And then we see, we see other Canadian women running fast. And we're like, okay, maybe I can do that too. And so that's, it's just spiraled. We're just keep sort of inspiring each other and lowering the bar. And like, you know, Melinda Elmore ran 224.50 in Houston and lowered our Canadian record by two minutes, which was nuts. And, you know, lowered the bar so much. And, and when I started training for mine, I was like, that's now my goal. Whereas before it would have just been, you know, 226.56. And now I'm like, no, I want to go after that. And so when you're, these Canadian women continue to run faster. We're all now, you know, wanting to run faster as well. And I think it's the same thing that's happening in the U S like, you know, Sarah Hall's PB was 222. Would she have gone after 219.40 if that wasn't the record? No. So 
but she did and she came dang close, right? Like that's just the way it works. So it's really exciting and it's really, I feel so lucky to be a part of this marathon emergence in Canada. It's so cool. <laughs> it is really exciting. And, and even as an outsider across the border, it's exciting to watch. And you said it, that success has bred both interest and more success. And that's encouraging going forward as well. Yeah. Fruitful distance running is such a long-term endeavor. When you look back at the time between Toronto 2013 and last week in Arizona, what's a key lesson or two you can pinpoint and share with all the runners out there as critical to your path to ultimately a 10-minute personal best? I think definitely, like we've talked about a lot, is a mental shift and also being a more experienced runner and knowing what works for me and what doesn't. And I think having joy in the process, I've, I heard this quote, if you have joy in the process, you'll have joy in the outcome. Mm -hmm. And I think that's a huge shift from 2013 and 2014 when I was just going through a hard time in my life, to be honest, it was not a great time for me. And that was reflected in how I enjoyed the training and how I raced. And now I'm in a great spot. I have an amazing coach, which I have a wonderful relationship with. We have open communication we created this plan together. You know, she asked me before she wrote it, what do you see? What do you want? What are some workouts you want? And she put those in there. You know, she respected me. And as a, as a individual and, and as a human being, that's, you know, so important that it's not just here's the coach and here's the athlete. It's like, you know, we're a team and I'm a person. And that's the most important thing is how I'm doing Am I happy? Am I in a mentally good place? And, and if you're not in that mental good, mentally good place or emotionally well, it's going to be very hard to train for a marathon. And so I think this time we really respected that and made sure that I was enjoying the process and things were going well. And we would constantly check in on that to see how I was doing. Do you need a day off? Do you like, how are you doing? And so I think, you know, that was a big difference for me. And I think a lot of people need to remember that if you're not enjoying the process, you're unlikely to have a good outcome. So you really, you, you can change something and you, it's, you can, you can change something. You can talk to your coach, talk to your coach. Like um, you should never be so tired that you're crying, things like that, you know, kind of built into you that it's, it's a grind and it needs to be tough. And yes, it is tough, but when you're, you know, literally like in pain and crying for more than a day a week. Like these are bells ringing, like that's not okay. And I think we need to get out of that mentality. And yeah, I don't know if that I rambled on or if I answered your question, but for me, it was just a huge transition in the way that I lived my life and enjoyed the process and had a different coach. And I'm just a more mature athlete. And I knew that me taking a day off wasn't being lazy or wasn't working hard. It was just the smartest decision for me. And thankfully, like it worked. <laughs> yeah, it's a tremendous insight. Definitely. All right. It's breakfast time. This is what all the listeners really want to know. Yes. It's breakfast time, which it, it actually is for you right now as we speak. Yes. And no worry about training. No worry about what, how you're going to feel for a run later in the day. I'm giving you three options. I want you to rank them in order for me. 
pancakes, waffles, French toast. Where are we going? French toast, pancakes, waffles. My girl. I'm right with you. You nailed it. There you uh, go. <laughs> Less. I did have chocolate chip banana pancakes the other day made by my boyfriend. Oh, that sounds yeah. fantastic. Yes. That's the best thing about not having to run is having whatever the heck you want for breakfast. <laughs> it is a very nice reward. Yes. Where can people follow you and your progress as we move towards, hopefully, fingers crossed, Tokyo next summer? Thank you. Well, I post everything on Strava. So if you want to take a closer look at my marathon build, and the marathon itself, I'm on Strava, and it's just Natasha Wodak. Um, on Instagram and Twitter, I'm Tasha Wodak. Otherwise, I think that's it. Am I missing? I have a website, TashaWodak.com. So I haven't updated it in a while. I'm not very techy. So maybe I'll get to that on this quarantine. I'll add it to my list of things to do. But yeah, that's yep. me. Fantastic. We'll be following you. We'll be rooting for you this year. Thank you and so much. It, it's our hope that maybe after a successful year, we can get back in touch with you and uh, hear about an Olympic experience. So we'll see how the, uh, the year unfolds. Fantastic. Happy New Year. Thank you very much. Thanks for listening to Mile 68. We'll keep you updated on Natasha's results this season. Next time on Seconds Flat, we look ahead to the new year with a poignant and inspiring interview about how committing to running and reaching goals can change lives. Be well, and we'll talk to you then.